so long as they put you in the category of yuva i suppose you can be happy about it rather than sitting here with a danda and trying to figure out who was good in history and who was bad in history. and and this is one of my grievances against the way indian history is generally defined which is very north india oriented talk about devdasis in southern india uh, the victorian tendency was to look at them just as prostitutes as glorified prostitutes the caricature that these people just rode elephants sat on shiny thrones and shiny chairs drank a lot of champagne gambled away their fortunes and just basically oppressed people while they were not partying that was all the rajas did but equally you have to be aware that this is the gaze of a white man who thinks he's here to save and shape and mold this brown misguided prince there's a misconception that only lower caste women were not permitted to cover themselves that's not actually true uh, we have visual evidence of the queens of cochin the namudri women who are brahmin women all of them were uniformly topless now हेलो असलम नमस्ते सत्याकाल मेरी क्रिसमस वेलकम टू अनादर एपिसोड ऑफ द पाकिस्तान एक्सपीरियंस एंड आई एम रादर एक्साइटेड अबाउट टुडेज एपिसोड बिकॉज वन ऑफ यू वन ऑफ आर लिस्नर्स टोल मी अबाउट आर नेक्स्ट गेस्ट एंड सिंस देन आई बिन ऑब्सेसली लिसनिंग टू दिस मैन मिस्टर मनू पिले हाउ यू सर Thank you very much for having me. I didn't know that the suggestion came from a from a from a somebody who heard your podcast. Sure. I'm very curious as to who this person you, is. You you have fans across the border. <laughs> I'm very flattered. Thank you. Yeah, I mean you are one of these new age sexy historians. For people who don't know him, by the way, uh, I'm sure you've probably seen one of his books online. Uh, he's a historian. He won uh, the Yuva Puraskar. Yuva Puraskar yes. for 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 the Ivory Throne Chronicles of the House of Travancore. Uh, at twenty seven, are you the youngest recipient? No, no, I don't think. I mean, I don't know actually. I haven't thought about that, but God knows. Doesn't matter anyway. I mean, so long as they put you in the category of Yuva, I suppose you can be happy about it. So let's just jump straight into it. I think you talk a lot about demystifying the past, or as you have put it, um, pedestalization that we do of historical figures. So your work clearly does that. What I'm wondering is, was that the intention or the philosophy going into the work, or did that come out of what you read? I think. you know i've never sort of romanticized the past i've never seen the past as something that should be exoticized on the contrary from my teenage years whenever i thought of the past it was always as a time where people operated that is other human beings operated and you know i suppose if people have heard me talking in podcasts before they'll get a bit bored with me repeating the same thing but it all goes back to the way my own grandmother told me stories about her own family members her parents her grandparents and she didn't do it in a way that taught you sort of to sort of pedestalize these people it was very much as individual human beings not necessarily as great grandfather great grandmother but just individual human beings who led interesting often mischievous often scandalous uh, complicated lives like all of us you know human beings are complex creatures and i was fascinated essentially by that way of looking at the past which is that these are just human beings operating in their time in a different context and looking at the context itself through their eyes naturally becomes a a more interesting experience rather than putting them as some kind of heroic figures who you install on a pedestal and then look at the past through some rose tinted uh, gaze or where everybody is either a villain or a complete divine being you know these were human beings so i think that is what set it off just the way my grandmother approached family stories which i then borrowed and started looking at historical figures in a similar way and i think it's been the case 
since then. It, you know, even with my first book, The Ivory Throne, which was set in the princely state of Travancore, which is now in Kerala in South India. It was basically, I mean, there's this whole aura about that royal family and how they're sort of semi-divine figures and very simple. And there's this whole romance built around that family. But my research, everything showed me that, no, there was corruption, there was politics, there was power play. There was everything that we associate as negative in today's corridors of power existed even then. And they were also just human beings who were flawed. They had their strengths, but they also had their weaknesses. And that is fine. It's not a, a big deal. You know, you're not sitting here in judgment over them. Your goal is really just to understand them and understand that period rather than sitting here with a danda and trying to figure out who was good in history and who was bad in history. So there's, uh, I think that's the approach in general. As, as somebody who's been listening to all those podcasts you've been on, rather than getting bored from it, I think you have piqued an interest in your audience. And a lot of us are actually also interested in the titillating tales of your family members that your <laughs> grandmother <laughs> told you that you've mentioned that she's told you, but we haven't heard the stories themselves yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I'll give you one story, which is there used to be this uh, very grand carved four-poster canopy bed uh, when my grandmother was a, a child, which belonged to her grandfather. And, you know, I thought, you know, old agrarian uh, household, they had lots of land, etc. So it's typical to see some grand items of furniture like this in an ancestral home. But by the time I was born, only half of the legs survived and they were thrown in a cow shed. And she used to keep saying, oh yeah, that originally used to be this really grand bed and now only so much is left. And that prodding and asking as to what on earth caused a bed to just be reduced to these four half leg uh, pieces sitting in a cow shed. It turns out that my great-great-grandfather, there's this temple in Kerala called Kodungalur, where they have this great annual festival. And he went there and apparently over there, he stayed in the house, stayed in courts, in the house of a very famous courtesan. And he saw a very wonderful, fine, well-constructed court in her house. And he came back and he had this one constructed very much as a copy of that court. And my great-great-grandmother naturally hated it because it was some random courtesan's bed that he had copied and brought into her house. Uh, so her favorite uh, pastime was every time he went somewhere, she would gather up all the kids, drench them in oil, etc., send them out to play. And when they were sufficiently dirty, she would get them to uh, come and uh, sit on this bed and basically ruin it. And the story goes that one day, great-great-grandfather came back and he was furious. His usual technique was that he would get upset and go back to his family home, where he would call his nephews and they would lift him with the bed and take him, almost like in a palanquin, across the fields to his house. One day, however, he got very upset and he started hacking away at it. So the top part of the bed was destroyed by him because he was angry. Then once it was destroyed, they started you know, cutting off different parts of the bed and using it as firewood uh, in the kitchen because they were like, look, the bed is ruined anyway. Let's just put it to good use. Till by the time I was born, all, was, all that was left was half of the legs that had somehow miraculously, miraculously survived and ended up in a cow shed. So, you know, everything in the story involves that man's rage, his wife's uh, irritation with him and a courtesan who was the original inspiration behind the, the bed to begin with. That story turned out to be a lot more interesting than any ideas I had about how two legs of a bed could have been broken. <laughs> but I'm quite interested in even this idea of the courtesan. So uh, my master's thesis was actually in Lahore and the idea of the courtesan culture. And I it was on performance studies, gender performativity. So I've been very intrigued by all the work that you've done. But the idea of the courtesan, you feel like our modern sensibilities almost think of it pejoratively Instead, a lot of what the history shows us, and even in your book, The Courtesan, Mahatma and the Italian Brahmin, the idea of the courtesan is a lot more emancipated than what we might think of it as, and which 
is often quite mistakenly translated as a sex slave yeah i mean i wouldn't use the word emancipated because you see some of these words are also very contemporary you know they're so trying to sort of retrospectively use them for that period erases some of the like negative sides of things so you know when you talk about devdasis in southern india uh, the victorian tendency was to look at them just as prostitutes as glorified prostitutes and that was about it whereas the fact is that some of them yes they had fallen on bad times and they did uh, succumb to prostitution as a profession and that was part of the truth but the larger issue is you're right you know it wasn't the case that they were uh some kind of negative figure in society from the start on the contrary they were seen as auspicious people they were women who had access to education they had women who were who had they were women who had access to creative arts they had they had autonomy they often owned property they often had mobility you know a courtesan like gohardjan was born in one place to a parents of mixed background she had mobility her mother had mobility she could go to a court and if she managed to get in she would make a bit of money there then they ended up in calcutta which is where gohardjan eventually becomes a, a a famous uh, singer and so on so they had mobility they had a certain kind of economic autonomy if they succeeded again not all courtesans were equal you know they also probably had a a so called caste system within uh, as to who was rich and who was not and who was capable of of exercising that kind of influence and who has who had no option but to essentially uh, be somebody's in court's concubine so it's a mixed world but in principle these are women who are not dependent necessarily on marriage for security who are not illiterate who are not entirely without political and personal agency and that is what is interesting and i think the the word i would use is they were interesting figures this whole negative sort of approach to them is very much a victorian thing and in my new book which is called false allies it's on the princely states there's this one case in a in a you know in a in a south indian princely state called pudukote where there's this reforming minister and he comes in with this very self conscious agenda to reform everything and he says that the, the the palace of the rani has all these dancing girls these devdasis and courtesans coming and going and he says this is bad these women are bad influences on on royalty royal women are supposed to be chaste and proper and you know sort of secluded so this is bad exposure and uh, he bans these women from entering what he doesn't realize is or what what he probably realizes and what he was really hammering away at is that the women of the palace were in parda they did not go out into the streets but the devdasis went out into the streets they went out into the markets they danced at the homes of uh, important ministers and courtiers they danced in the temple they heard what was happening in the capital they heard what was happening in the important spots all around the the, the royal center and that information they would then transmit to the queens so the devdasis were not random dancing girls some kind of negative influence out to corrupt everybody's morals they were a source of intelligence and therefore a source of political influence for the women sitting in the palace so in in a single princely state if you see that they have a political role as well as a cultural role you can imagine that on the whole this whole courtesan culture you know there's there's a lot more to uncover there even without romanticizing it even without uh, acknowledging the fact that there were courtesans who were you know had fallen on by on hard times who had to sort of uh, again in court sell their bodies or whatever but the point is that's not all there is to the story and i think there's a book called tawaif nama by saba divan which is a rather heavy hefty tome Uh, which actually goes into this and she traces out the families of old tawaifs in north india has conversations with them and 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 reconstructs that period in a very very interesting way i mean we saw this play out during zaul haq's position of the idea of islamization in pakistan quite recently when they cracked down on the shahi mohalla on the basis of 
the idea of prostitution, but women ended up with a lot less agency post that. Mm -hmm. I agree that the idea of sexual emancipation may be a lot reason. Is it also too simplistic to maybe say, or what is your idea of, uh, I'm sure the idea of sexual emancipation was not in popular culture, but almost this Victorian morality of your moral standing is determined in society based on who you're having sex with or how much you're having sex with. Was that still uh, in popular sensibilities pre-Victorian era or pre-British or are, like with most things, they're primarily to blame for this? <laughs> well, I think the British are to blame for, for several things. This, I think the kind of Victorianization of people's minds very much stems from that colonial period. Uh, but you do see that, you know, there were some trends from before. For example, if you go back into the medieval period, into the ancient period or whatever, in India especially, you find that there wasn't that kind of, Parda, for example, did not exist. What happens is that with the establishment of the, the Islamic, uh, the Sultanate and then the Mughals, etc., they import the idea of the Parda woman. Now, that is not to say the Parda woman did not have agency. Ira Mukoti's book on Mughal women shows that they could be everything from trading magnates to diplomats to many other roles in court. But even so, the culture or the, the, the sort of ideal that, oh, elite women must be must not be accessible to the gaze of other men from everywhere else, that idea then gets picked up by Hindu elites because they see one new elite doing this and they decided to absorb it. Now, obviously, much of this revolves around policing women and their bodies. And where I come from, which is Kerala, this has very interesting consequences in the 19th century because you, feel, you see in Kerala, nobody covered themselves above the waist. Ordinary people, you'd wear something around the waist, like a, a lungi or a munda or a sarong, or something like that. And the rest of it would be left bare. Whether you were a Brahmin woman, whether you were an untouchable lady, that was the norm. There's a misconception that only lower caste women were not permitted to cover themselves. That's not actually true. Uh, we have visual evidence of the queens of Cochin, the Namudri women who are Brahmin women, all of them were uniformly topless. Now, the thing is, in the 19th century, colonialism knits, you know, the Indian subcontinent together, people start going to college, and they start hearing these men from Kerala start hearing that, oh, your, your culture is not civilized, your women are not civilized, look at them, they're, they're walking around topless. And then there's this kind of internalizing of that gaze, which you then import to Kerala, and you start insisting that the cult of the blouse should pick up. You know, there was a time when even men in orthodox families, when you went out, you could wear your shirt, etc. and go. But when you came back to the ancestral home and had to sit down for lunch, you would have to get rid of your shirt because sitting with the shirt was brushed. It was not considered proper. It was not considered traditional. My own family, my great-great-grandmother great got her first blouse when she was in her 40s. Uh, till then, she was topless and she was an elite aristocratic woman of, of means. But she was topless because no, nobody thought that was a, a thing to worry about. It was in her 40s that uh, her, her second daughter was getting married and the bridegroom's mother brought her a blouse as a gift. And the story in the family goes that she wore it for the first time and stood in front of the mirror and admired this new garment of hers. And when they said, why don't you, why don't you come out and let everybody see you? She said, no, no, no. How can I go in front of my brother and my husband wearing a blouse? What will they think of me? You know, it's the opposite of what would happen today, right? You know, you, you, you're supposed to cover yourself and go in front of your family elders. There, the idea was, was the other way around. My father's grandmother, I have a photograph of her from the 70s that he took and she was she was topless even in the 70s because by then younger women would cover up but older women would still stick to the old custom by which they did not objectify their bodies that way that generation did not think that just because you're a woman you must cover yourself you know that gaze comes very much from english education from victorian influences and the idea that not just it wasn't that 
people have to cover themselves about the waist. It was primarily that women have to cover themselves about the waist. And that is very much a sort of colonial uh, consequence that's that's happened in Kerala. And, this, and the same holds for different parts uh, of, of the Indian subcontinent in different ways. I think colonialism, therefore, does get a lion's share of the blame. Uh, you know, what earlier times, what the elites did, did not necessarily trickle down in that way into every level of society. Whereas colonialism, the forces of modernity, the forming of modern identities, the idea of reform, all of this means that in the 19th century, all this went down and seeped into all levels of society at a completely div uh, different scale and in a completely different way. And that, therefore, uh, I think ended up doing a lot more damage. Of course, this is not to say that today I'm suggesting if all women in Kerala discard their blouses and, and go back to the old ways, because now that's not possible. The new morality has uh, become entrenched. But when we look at the past, I think we can look at it. I mean, when people say that bringing blouses was a reform, it was not actually a reform. It was bringing a patriarchal gaze, specifically of a Victorian shape and, and tailoring into Kerala and, in, and telling the women that, oh, you're women, therefore this is how your bodies must be looked at and this is how your bodies must be covered. I think it's uh, a lot of history that we take to be fact. It's almost uh, this idea of bioessentialism that Presswood merely... Uh, developed so that the male could be attracted to women. They assume something based on history that they know to be fact today. And it's not whether a body part is sexual to begin with. It's more about how it is sexualized and how it is objectified. An interesting part that I found about the anecdote was, yes, maybe that objectification didn't exist, but patriarchy still existed because for your oh, great grandmother yeah. to think about the fact that she would go in front of the men wearing that blouse is still a patriarchal construct, even though it's the inverse of what we would uh, take to be. Factual. I mean, I don't know if it was the men specifically, more the idea of the elders, you know, her older brother. She was the youngest in her generation. So it was just the idea, how can I go in front of the elders dressed in such a radical, controversial way, covering myself up because they don't expect it. I, You know, it reminds me of this gentleman I met in, in Cochin a couple of years ago. His father was a prince of the Cochin royal family. And there, the princesses did not cover themselves, you know, the older princesses, even in the 1960s and 70s. And I've seen photographs where when they come in front of the camera or when they come and sit for a portrait artist, they're aware that the portrait artists and the cameraman come from a new worldview, from a new morality. And therefore, what they do is they don't wear a blouse because blouses are still brushed for them. It's not orthodox enough to wear a blouse. What they take is a piece of cloth, fold it and hold it against the breast and tuck it under the armpit very loosely, just a cloth held like that. And that's how they pose in paintings and in, in front of the camera. When, whereas when they go back, they discard that and go back to their normal thing. Eventually, however, for so let's say that was the eldest generation of women facing these Victorian influences. The next generation kept that constantly. So they would constantly have it. And I remember this gentleman telling me that he's seen women even playing tennis in the royal family with this thing. Somehow, I don't know how they managed it, but they would, they would manage. And then the next generation graduated to blouses, etc. There was obviously patriarchal influence, but I think a lot of it was also elders and orthodox elders, etc., and the, a friend of mine who's from another uh, one of these princely families in a place called Kodungalur tells me that the old men of that family, early in the morning when the women would go to the temple, there was actually a generation when the men would sit in the portico and flash torches to make sure the women were not wearing blouses and going to the temple in, in an attire that was considered improper when entering the temple. So they would sit in the morning at five o'clock with torches in their hands to police the bodies of these women the other way, as you said, you know, where they're like, you know, women should not wear blouses, they must be bare 
because that is the the tradition i i recently got cancelled online in fact so much so that i had to delete the image i think we talk a lot about what our culture is and this complete misnomer that western values are being imported or even the binary between the east and west so i posted a picture of a statue that they found in monjodaro and i said this is actually your culture so um since we have we don't have too much time with you i would love to do specific podcast about specific books but i today i think uh we should get into the process you've also now looked at uh, the works of ravi verma how much does art play into this i think maybe historically the academia has um maybe not given art as much importance which is changing in recent times with even people's histories uh, gaining prominence so when you look at art when you look at literature and you've also looked at plays as well how much credence should we pay to those when we uh, think of something as a historical fact well you know any period you're studying from the past you have to bring in the creative uh, side of things into the evidence that you're considering uh you know a, a favorite example i often give is of this 18th century maratha king uh, called shahu of tanjavur and you know if you look at him just as a king and look at his political orders and the political you know dynastic chronicles and the genealogies and all that you'll get one side of the man one he's he's a sort of unidimensional king there but then you look at his own literary output and there's so much fun there's so much mischief there's a kind of lampooning of caste positions there's a lampooning of the whole uh, sort of thing around beef in um, among orthodox hindus for example by an 18th century king so you're getting a completely different insight into his mind simply through the creative output that he's that he's created you look at an emperor like krishna devaraya in vijayanagara you know he also wrote and composed works of his own which tells you about his views on language which tells you about his views on on courtliness on what an an ideal king should do on strategic matters all of that comes through in in his own writings similarly you you compare a portuguese observer's description of the king where he says the king is stocky and he sort of works out a great deal etc and then you look at the bronze that the king has donated depicting himself and his wives to the temple at tirupati you get completely different pictures of the same man so i think increasingly one has to look at art serious scholars i think have always uh, known that you know without looking at art and the creative output of any period you can't really reach uh, any kind of conclusion you mentioned ravi varma for example in my latest book i use him because when i talk of these princely states and their rulers he was a favorite portrait artist with them not because he came and painted their likeness and painted their faces very exactly often he made them handsomer and more beautiful than they actually were but he actually helped them project the image they wanted to project and by which they wanted to be remembered so even a weak ruler will have himself painted by ravi varma in a posture and a, and a stance of great confidence because it's about communicating a larger point rather than simply sketching out the the person's face everything from the details and the kinds of clothes that are worn whether shoes are worn or shoes are not worn what books are in the background or what books are missing uh, what other elements exist in the painting all of these give you clues as to what the painter is trying to communicate so he he does this uh, portrait of two travancore princes in which uh, they've got a globe in front of them they're dressed in traditional wear traditional in courts uh, and they have a globe in front of them and the globe has been turned towards the viewer with the, with america the american continent uh, visible and one of these boys has a book in his hand and if you go closely you'll see that the page is also talking about america now this painting was made somewhere in the 1870s and there's this whole cliche that native princes were very backward they didn't know anything about the world they were completely cut off and isolated from any kind of modern impulses and knowledge and in a sense this painting is questioning that that 
idea by you know, saying that we may be orthodox princes in India who are not capable of traveling abroad because of uh, religious taboos or whatever. But through this book and through this globe, we know what is happening in America. We have a sense of what is happening in the wider world. So that painting isn't just a portrait of two brothers from a royal family. It's also messaging or it's also encapsulating a kind of political message. And that is true of all times. When I did my second book on the Deccan Sultans, one of my, I mean, there are many artworks from that period which are quite remarkable. One, for example, from a, a manuscript called Tariqi Hussain Shahi shows the, the Nizam Shah of Ahmednagar, you know, one of the, the sultans of that period. And what's interesting is in some of the paintings, there's the sultan and then next to him, there's this giant blob. And it turns out that that blob showed his wife, except that at some point, somebody who wasn't very pleased with the royal woman uh, in, in the painting, they say it was her son, who was a bit resentful of the mother, painted over her and turned her into this giant smudge. That single piece of art tells you about gender, it tells you about power play within the family and a son's resentment towards his own mother. Uh, you take uh, the, the pa a painting that Ibrahim Adil Shah of Bijapur uh, commissioned and you look at it at one glance and you see a Persianate woman. You know, she's dressed in the Islamic style and that's all there is to it. But you look more closely and you start discovering there's a veena, there's a conch, there's a, a book, etc., which are all emblems and marks of the Hindu goddess Saraswati. So when Ibrahim Adil Shah of Bijapur imagines his Saraswati, he doesn't really build on, let's say, Hindu uh, styles of portraying her, but sort of marries the Persianate style with the Hindu goddess and creates something very interesting there, which again gives you an insight into his mind, into the kind of work that was happening in his time and in his court. Go back further in time, you know, you there's you go to to, to the Madurai temple and there's uh, there's a picture of the one of the Nayaka kings of, of Madurai. This nice pot-bellied man there, and then you read scholarly works where they say that actually the Nayaka kings did prefer to be depicted as pot-bellied men because they thought it, it sort of communicated something they wanted to communicate, as opposed to earlier bronzes where the figures are all much leaner and and more sort of idealized. So all of these. Art does carry uh, historical value and political meaning. and Historical Instagram pictures. Yeah, of that time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, since we've already moved into the world of social media, the two threads I want to pull on and I'll let you synthesize the two because you've also spoken about the idea of these Twitter historians who might pick out uh, one thing from history and take that to be fact just because it's written. And uh, so as a historian, how do you sift through that? You've also spoken about the idea where uh, I think Jangir commissioned a painting of him uh, with the severed head of Malik Ambar because which was one of his fantasies. A historian yeah. may be able to tell that this is his fantasy and this is not fact. Uh, I, maybe let's just address that before I get to the second thread. Well, there's propaganda art always existed in a sense. You know, there, there, there's that. Uh, I remember in London at one point doing my research, I found this image of which was showing, I think, Tipu Sultan spanking the bottom of an English soldier like very sort of explicit kind of uh, picture, which was basically a kind of caricature that was done in the 18th century. Because that art was also a form of communicating kingship, political propaganda, and what how political figures wanted to be, wanted the public to recognize their deeds. Tipu Sultan is a, is a good example, because if you go to Sri Rangapatna and look at his palace there, it's covered with mural paintings. Uh, and, and one of them depicts this great battle that he won against the British called the Battle of Pololu, uh, 1780. And what's interesting is that in that, uh, there's carnage, there are heads missing, arms missing, bloodshed all around in that mural painting. But then there appears Tipu on her oversized horse, smelling a, a flower as if he's in a garden somewhere, showing 
demonstrating that he's completely confident of his confident of his victory and he's completely therefore self assured uh, even in a battlefield because he's royal and he he sort of knows that he's winning and then how does he depict the english colonel on the other side firstly the colonel is shown seated in a palanquin not on a horse which is supposed to uh, suggest effeminacy you know somebody who's not masculine enough to get on a horse and lead his men uh, you know into the battlefield and he's also chewing his nails it's again a very visual thing of this englishman sitting and chewing his nails just as the british once they did topple tipu in the artwork that they commissioned they would have these grand sort of uh, scenes where tipu's uh, you know surrender not, not his surrender his sons are being handed over in in the early 1790s there's one grand painting of that there's something after the fall of sri lanka patna like this great victorious kind of thing a very sanitized version and a very noble version of how they managed to uh, conquer sri lanka patna the, the bloodshed and the violence and all that is erased and it's just this kind of you know this is justice and this is right and we have god on our side kind of art so art does have that kind of uh, of a projection as well which should not surprise us because even now you know the analogy i always give is when political leaders whether it's trump whether it's narendra modi in india every time official pictures are released they're always carefully curated and then released you know you never find one picture in which i know the person looks ugly for example or unleader like or un- underconfident in any way they're supposed to look like leaders and that's how these pictures are often released and you know if it's happening now why do we assume that earlier times uh, you know the the people in power then behave differently they were also aware that pictures survive often uh, for a long time they circulate sometimes in very interesting spaces and therefore they want to be remembered a certain way did you read uh, trump's medical records that were released officially no i i, I haven't read <laughs> apparently trump weighed 180 pounds was the healthiest uh, individual that any person has oh, ever seen <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sure history did that as well. I think the connected thread was that a lot of our history unfortunately comes through colonialism to us. We are told who we are from the lens of the other and wherever it's been politically convenient on either side of the border, we have adopted that as well. It's almost yeah. like our colonizer described us as a tyrant and we took pride in being that tyrant and somehow understood that to be our history and we've owned that and we're trying to replicate that so when as a historian how conscious do you have to be and i think in the past couple of decades after it would say there's a lot of these ideas of orientalism yeah. how do you swim against that while doing uh, while looking at the archives I think uh, you have to read between the lines sometimes because for instance I mean in my latest book which is about the princely states and the rajas you know the, the caricature that these people just rode elephants sat on shiny thrones and shiny chairs drank a lot of champagne gambled away their fortunes and just basically oppressed people while they were not partying that was all the rajas did is the is the image we've got and every time you encounter a stereotype or a cliche of this sort I think the important question to ask is why does the stereotype exist there may be a germ of truth in that Yes many of these princes were prone to excess there was luxury and that kind of flaunting of 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 wealth and and greatness fine but if this stereotype has become so strongly sort of you know enmeshed in our in our in our memory and in our intellect and people believe that serious historians have taken it for granted that the princely states were just you know wastes of space there was nothing happening there of interest i think there's something to interrogate and ponder and question about that and i think 
anybody who sort of trains to be a historian, this is one of the first things you learn, which is that anything you receive, any sort of received wisdom that comes to you, you must question it, you must interrogate it, and challenge it to see whether it stands up to scrutiny. And in my fourth book, I essentially begin with a quote by Indira Gandhi in 1967, where she says, go ask your Rajas what they did. If you look at the sum total of their achievements, it's a grand zero. They didn't build any wells, they didn't build any canals, they didn't build any roads. They're basically useless people who did nothing. And then the rest of the book is me essentially disproving that idea. Not by siding with the princes, not by saying they were great or good or bad men or whatever, but by saying that they were political actors and as political actors, they were interesting. They also resisted colonialism. They had interesting ways by which they were able to handle that negotiation with the British and keep the British at bay. They were able to subvert the Raj at times. They were able to confuse the Raj at times. Sometimes some of the royal women were even able to manipulate British officials to get the British to do what they actually wanted wanted them to do. So there was actually a lot more of interest that was happening there, which means that you have to, you know, be able to identify this even in the material you're reading. So for instance, if I come across, let's say, uh, I came across these diaries of a royal tutor of one of these Rajas. Now, when I'm going into it to begin with, I know this is being written by a white man about his brown ward. So there's going to be a certain kind of prejudice there. All the same, that doesn't mean everything in it is a lie. So when he describes inner workings of the palace, etc., there is truth in it. There is fact to be culled from there. But equally, you have to be aware that this is the gaze of a white man who thinks he's here to save and shape and mold this brown, misguided prince. That prejudice is also playing in that text. And, and once you're aware of it, you can identify which parts have that prejudice and which parts are, are reliable sort of factual uh, data that you can draw on and build. Even the existence of the prejudice is historical material. It, it, it can be used to frame an argument. So it's just a question of looking at the material in a critical way, as opposed to buying it on, uh, you know, taking it at face value. You mentioned Twitter historians, etc. I actually don't mean that all of them are bad in the sense that I've learned some great things off social media. Manu, don't uh, be afraid of being cancelled. Don't be afraid. No, no, no. I've been cancelled for other <laughs> Hashtag reasons. Hashtag cancel so Manu. <laughs> no, no. I've, I, it's not about that. I've been cancelled anyway. So in, in one context. So that's okay. No, but all of them, I've, I've, met, I've seen some very interesting handles that do provoke thought, etc. But the bulk of them, you're right, is, is it's quite disappointing because say, for instance, they will pick out a line, let's say by Ahmed Shah Bahamani of, of the Deccan Sultanate saying that, oh, you know, every time he killed 20,000 Hindus, he would have a grand feast. Now, this is from a Persian chronicle. So they're like, look, this is straight out of the horse's mouth. It's evidence written by the king's own courtier. Therefore, it must be true. You know, this is the king's own people admitting that they killed 20,000 Hindus a day. But the thing is, historians are trained to ask questions of the text. Firstly, this is written in Persian. It's meant for people in some Islamic wider universe. The king is trying to flaunt that he's a great destroyer of infidels and trying to gain some legitimacy from it by orthodox figures, maybe sitting in, in, in Ottoman Turkey or in Egypt or wherever. So that's one angle. The second thing is, look at the population uh, trends of that time. If he was really slaughtering 20,000 Hindus a day, his kingdom would have collapsed. His kingdom was built on Hindu arms. It was built with uh, Hindu ministers and so on. So it's obviously not uh, factual. Even when we say that, you know, when, especially here, a lot of right-wingers say that, oh, this particular Islamic king invaded and destroyed this Hindu kingdom or whatever. It doesn't mean that all his soldiers were Muslims. They, it was a mix. Armies are always a mix of people of different castes, different religions, etc. When, when Aurangzeb came to Golconda to destroy its sultan, saying that the sultan is a Shia, 
His own generals were Shia. His own mother was a Shia. That was just an excuse to invade. It was not really the fact that it was it was religion that was motivating him. He wanted for politics. The, the Shia Sunni thing just became an excuse for him. And it's the same with this Ahmed Shah Bahmani thing, which is that when he says he's got 20,000 people being killed on a daily basis or whatever, a historian is supposed to ask questions of that. Think of the probability, think of the other contextual evidence and then come to a conclusion. Saying that, yes, probably a very violent campaign, but let's also understand that there was poetic exaggeration in this claim of 20,000 infidels being killed on a daily basis. That is how you slowly sift through the material, slowly reach uh, certain conclusions. Similarly, when when you know there's a, 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 a text called the Madura Vijayam, which is about a Vijayanagara prince going in and destroying the Madurai Sultanate and restoring Hindu dharma there, etc. What's interesting in that is, again, it's written in Sanskrit, so it's written for a very elite audience. It's not written for local people there. Uh, the same kind of language is used also for a Hindu dynasty on the way. So it's not like this was specifically to target uh, just the Muslims who are in the in the story. It was also uh, used for the Sambhuvarayas, which is a, a Hindu uh, ally or, or a Hindu side of uh, a Hindu dynasty. So things are much more complicated. And once you have the perspective and the tools to look at any text critically, then it sort of flows. Every time you look at any historical material, your mind is sort of equipped and trained not to take it at face value, but to understand that, okay, this is giving me some information, but the information may be loaded and qualified by certain other things that are not obvious at one glance, but can be identified slowly if you spend some time with the material. This may be a little tangential. For, as far as Aurangzeb is concerned, the more interesting what if for me is Dara Shiko. But does it irk you when in... Uh, I've seen it in a lot of places now that Aurangzeb is somehow now described as the first Taliban. Does that idea irk you? I don't think you can... I mean, the first Taliban are when the Taliban was created. I mean, I don't think you can, again, retrospectively identify people as Taliban or whatever. There is... I mean, that's the thing, right? We, again, fall into these traps where... You know, here even well-meaning people say that, oh, Akbar was the good Mughal and Aurangzeb was the bad Mughal. You know, Akbar was the secular Mughal, Aurangzeb was the bigoted Mughal. And of course, you know, right-wingers hate him fully. They hate Akbar also. It's not like there's any distinction there. Their names they are... They actually are, are... hate Akbar a lot more, by the way, because the idea that I've seen uh, articulated is Akbar sort of convinced a lot of Hindus that there was place for them in the Mughal Empire, whereas Aurangzeb showed what the stark truth was. But you know that's what scholars say that Aurangzeb actually had more Hindus in his in his actual uh, you know establishment and military and political establishment than even Akbar because the empire was bigger under Aurangzeb so naturally there were more Hindus. There is no doubt that he was a more conservative man compared to his uh, predecessors. So by that yardstick, if you compare him to earlier Mughals, Mughal emperors, yes, he was more conservative. He was more sort of religiously oriented, very austere towards the later part of his life, etc. But scholars have also said that some of this stemmed from his desire to look different from Dara Shuka. So everything Dara was, Aurangzeb, to shape his own personality, to shape his own political image, he required to be something Dara was not. So Dara got branded. So even Dara, you know, it, it's very, as Supriya Gandhi, who's his latest biographer basically writes, there's nothing to say that if Dara Shuko had won the war of succession, he would not have been as brutal as Aurangzeb towards his brothers. In all likelihood, he would have been just as brutal because that was the norm. You know, you and it, it wasn't just the norm with the Mughals. It's happened in Rajput states. It's happened in Vijayanagar. It happened in anywhere where power was, in, was, was at stake. Violence was not very far away as far as that was concerned. So... Even if Dara Shuko had triumphed, you would have seen Aurangzeb would have probably lost his head. 
But the thing is that because Dara was a certain kind of figure and Dara flaunted that Sufism, a kind of, you know, interest in Hindu philosophy, all of that, Dara flaunted him in a certain way. Aurangzeb to counter that and to establish himself as an alternative power to woo, you know, the, the orthodox elements at court, to woo a certain segment of people who he thought would have some kind of political capital, he projected him in a, in a different way. Be that as it may, even if we assume he was personally very austere, personally very sort of uh, religious in, in a very orthodox way, it's fine. Like that was the emperor's uh, sort of personality. He ended up doing uh, relatively greater damage, I suppose, to his relations and his diplomatic links with a lot of other communities which Akbar had brought into the fold. None of that is disputed. It's just what is disputed is the idea that you use him in, in the 21st century as a kind of label by which you brand an entire segment of your population as negative or as I know as, as, as proto-Talibans or whatever. You know, that is not historical. You look at him in his context, you compare him to earlier Mughal sultans, you reach certain conclusions, that is fine. But everything happened in a certain period. And it's not like this is, I mean, it, it's contemporary use for politics, as I suppose, the, the mischief in the game, rather than looking him at him as a historical figure in his own time. Is there any truth to the idea of the gender fluidity of Dara Shekho? I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I'm not a Dara expert, so I wouldn't, uh, you know, venture to to give you any kind of response on that. Because I, I don't. I, want to that, that's that's a lot of what I'm interested in: the ideas of gender and queer history. Uh, we've had Madhvi Menon on as well to discuss that. Uh, in terms of religion. Uh, I'm sure a lot of history is colored by the immediacy of the idea of communalism, uh, communalism are a lot more common now. Do we overemphasize how important religion was in ancient India or was it more so a tool that was used by the powerful whenever it was convenient rather than it stemming out of this idea of a religious war? I think both in the sense that just as today there are people who mine religion for political purposes, there were people in the past who mined religion for political purposes. All the same, I won't say religion was no factor. I think religion was one of several factors. You know, it was not, my argument has always been that it was not the overwhelming dominant factor in determining the course of political events. Politics then as today was determined by expediency, by economic reasons, by political ambitions, and often by individuals, especially in a feudal time, individuals could make all the difference. You know, in, in a royal dynasty, it often came uh, to whether the king was capable or not. You know, if a, if a king was not capable, the whole thing could, uh, could go under very easily and very quickly. So it was a mix of several of these things. Some were perhaps more religious than others. Some used religion uh, when they needed an excuse. Aurangzeb in Golconda, for example, raking up the whole Shia thing simply because he wanted to get rid of that particular dynasty. Um, you know, so I think religion was one of several strands, but not the strand. However, a reason why a lot of people think religion was a dominant strand is that a lot of kingship, a lot of kingly ideals and personalities were expressed in a religious vocabulary. So anytime even a Pavanu power becomes a Raja or becomes a Nawab or whatever, they legitimize themselves by using religion to sanctify their newfound kingship. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you find that uh, the, the Deccan Sultans will do this. They'll catch hold of some Sufi, get the Sufi, and there'll be stories said that, you know, oh, the, the Sultan, when he was, before he was a Sultan, when he was an ordinary person, he went to see the Sufi, and the Sufi prophesies that, oh, you're going to become uh, a king in this lifetime. 
So it kind of gives a religious gloss and a religious sanction and legitimacy to a man who's actually gained power through violence, through crooked means, through winning battles, and so on and so forth. But it gives that gloss of legitimization. The same with uh, with Hindu monarchs as well, which is that every time uh, new powers come up, they connect themselves to important pre-existing temples or they construct new temples. And kingliness is then communicated as I am a protector of dharma, I am a protector of cows, that particular vocabulary, that kind of political rhetoric, which is loaded with religious symbolism, is used. What the difference, though, is that firstly, when when people say, "Oh, you know, all these, all the Hindus are oppressed in the time of the Islamic sultans or whatever," firstly, it, it again takes a modern category born of the 19th century census, which is that all these people were one block, all the Hindus, and they identified as such, and retrospectively applies it to all the people. Then, you know, so. When Aurangzeb goes out to conquer the Deccan, where the Marathas fight him, people like to position that as a Hindu-Muslim thing. But Aurangzeb's army is, you know, Shivaji was defeated. Shivaji, the Maratha leader, was defeated by Raja Jaising, who was a Rajput serving Aurangzeb. So, you know, there's it's, it's much more mixed up than that. I think religion was important, but it was not the sole overwhelming dominant factor in determining politics. It could be you know, selectively invoked as it is selectively invoked now. Uh, it, it, it did have value. I'm not saying it did not have meaning or value, but perhaps not as much as we tend to think and, and, and tend to believe sometimes. I think it goes back to where we started from, the idea of reducing historical figures who were living human beings, often with a sense of humor as well, to just certain ideas. Like you mentioned, Shivaji, who's father was Shaji, who was named after a Sufi saint, and you've talked yes. about this a lot in terms of um, Shah Sharif. It's not just him. There's a, there's a whole clan of Rajputs called Sheikhavats. And Sheikhavats, the, the clan was founded by a man who were, who was born because a Sheikh, uh, I think Sheikh Burhan was the name, blessed uh, the father and and, and you know, prophesied that he would have a, a, a noble son. And then the son and everybody descended from the son have been called Sheikhavats ever since. So even that comes from a Muslim Sufi saint. Uh, you know, and, and and the other way also worked. You know, there's a lot of religious leaders, perhaps orthodox segments on both sides, perhaps had clear ideas of us and them often. And you see this in the literature because they were directly engaged with some of the theological disputes, some of the core principles and so on. And, and they had something at stake in that. But as you come down in society, village level, etc., you find a lot of, you refer to gender bending, there's a kind of religion bending that happens there. Because a same family could identify as, okay, we will go, our family goddess is this particular Hindu Devi, but we are equally willing to go to this Sufi saint for blessings. As, uh, but when there was a holy man in the neighborhood, it didn't necessarily mean that only the Hindus found that holy man holy, or only the Muslims found that holy man holy. You know, even as late as the 18th century, I remember uh, for something I'm working on now, a lot of cases or disputes, even among Hindus, were resolved in mosques. You know, and, and some mosques had these, uh, you know, trial by ordeal, and there were these old systems where trials had to dip your hand into oil or whatever. There were some of those that Muslims came and did in Hindu settings. There were some cases where uh, Hindus would go to mosques and do whatever was the trial system in the mosque. And that is how local disputes were, 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 were clarified and were sort of handled. So at rural levels, I don't think these categories were that clear. There was a lot of mix up. Uh, it's only again in the 19th century with new identities coming in and people getting a sense that, oh, we are this, therefore we must stick to only uh, the Hindu side of things. And there's this wonderful, there are two books, one by Arvind um, 
Arvind Mander and Harjat Oberoi, who've written about the Sikhs, for example. And it's interesting that there was a lot of what one would now define as Hindu influence in Sikhism. And a lot of Sikhs, you know, happily went to the Amritsar Golden Temple, and then they would also hop to the nearest Hindu shrine and pay their respects there. And in the 19th century reform movements, there was a kind of cutting off from there. A lot of Sikh leaders said, no, no, you must stick only to Sikh institutions, Sikh gurus, and so on, and discard anything that comes from the Hindu religion, understandably, because they, they were afraid that they would get subsumed into the, into the Hindu identity and lose their own agency. But it's interesting, right? Even the 19th century, forget Hindu Muslim, even a religion like Sikhism, there was multiple influences at play. And the ordinary Sikh had no issues going to having a Brahmin officiate at his daughter's wedding, going to a Hindu astrologer, going to a Hindu pilgrim site, just as he venerated the gurus and the, and the Granth as well. So, you know, very, very mixed up. This is why I love reading people's history. Like Urvashi Batali also talks about her mamu being a Hindu and a Muslim and identifying as both and that dual duality existing when you talk to people and when you visit villages where social media has not penetrated that much. These strict boundaries may not exist like we think of them to be uh, not to uh, harp on the same issue uh, which we constantly do. But you mentioned since this consciousness uh, maybe gained a lot more mass popularity in the 19th century, should we again blame colonialism because they did benefit from identifying and characterizing what it means to be a Mohammedan or what it means to be yeah. a Muslim. And we sort of internalized that category, but in essence was a British categorization. Yeah, they, they were outsiders in the Indian subcontinent. So they naturally had a desire to put people into boxes, classify, bring order to what to them looked like chaos. Um, Indians had their own logic. They didn't think it was chaos. They had a way of operating in the system. It was the British who felt some urgency that, oh, no, no, something has to be done in a way that is comprehensible to us. But they were also in power, which basically means that once you create those categories, people who are willing to play within the rules of those categories will get the year of the state and the state and they will start realize and others will start realizing that acha to get the government's attention these are the rules these are the new patterns and i would rather follow this so that uh, you know i end up getting the attention i deserve because the earlier rulers have gone and you, so that's when you have the censuses and these creating of the idea of the majority and minority who's the majority in a region who's a minority in a region these come from the census then what happens is as elections come in and even the small elections that happen under the under the raj you know they slowly had these incremental reforms that they allowed so local body elections like municipalities for example by 1930s provincial governments were being formed that's where these concepts start mattering. You know, are you a majority person? Are you a minority person? You know, the internal differences are sort of erased or they're they masked or they're kept under. And then the broad identity is emphasized for electoral politics, for new political identities to take form. And, and the problem also was that the construction of nationalism in the 19th century, so even nationalists ended up buying into these concepts because these terms helped them build a kind of nationalistic argument as well. So it was, so the British created the, the, the let's say, the, they were the source of the mischief, but then the mischief was sort of appropriated, repurposed by the colonized for their own agenda, for their the own elite. purposes. Yes, the, in every country, it's really the elites that, that set the agenda in some ways. So yes, they, they sort of take it on and, you know, it becomes 
common belief. And so a, a kid going to college is taught that, Achha, these are the categories and this is the world in which you must operate. His own ancestral village may give him a completely different experience, but the cities where the conversations are happening, where the policies are being made, where the newspaper articles are being written, where the debates are being held in the press works on the basis of some of these uh, categories. Forget the religion, even things like, uh, forget between Hindus and Muslims, for example, and think of just within Hinduism as well. I remember this one uh, survey from the early 20th century, which talked about how a lot of lower caste Hindus, you know, were, were sort of looking at Hinduism as this new, more homogenized creation, as a new, more homogenized identity. And they realized that our gods are inferior gods, so we should abandon them and stay with the superior gods. And there's this interesting line there, which talks about how as people get educated, the Grama Devatas or the local village gods, the goddess of smallpox, you know, gods like that, they're sort of marginalized and the focus moves to the mainstream gods who are sort of the big, uh, uh, at the right at the head of the pantheon and who are acknowledged by all Hindus as important gods. Because when you're constructing a common homogenized identity, you need symbols and gods and an imagery that everybody can relate to. So the specific gets sort of marginalized and the common elements sort of get uh, an almost exaggerated importance in that time. That's just one, one religion. You know, Muslims in India had their own differences. The, the Muslim in Kerala, who, you know, their only royal family in Kerala is a matrilineal royal family. Matrilineal has no sanction in any orthodox Islamic law. And yet it was practiced because that was the local culture. The women did not have parda over there. And the women of that Muslim royal family had links to a Hindu royal family because the legend was that it was a Hindu princess who uh, converted and then set that up, that, that particular Muslim royal line up. So you, you take the brand of Islam that is practiced in Kerala, compare it to the Islam practiced in Kashmir, compare it to what's happening in Bengal, you're actually getting three different cultures. There is one common faith, there is one common book, but what that faith actually means in lived experience is very different. Uh, there is the orthodox ideal that perhaps a few people will believe in, a few people will speak Persian and Arabic and perhaps communicate even between these regions. But for the bulk of the people, there isn't uh, that, kind of, that kind of connection. So, you know, this kind of complexity gets slightly erased and it was erased in colonial discourse. And the mistake we often make when studying that period is to take it for granted, assuming that what we read when, when, when the colonial archive says, oh, in this particular district, this was the majority, this was the minority, these many Hindus existed, these many Muslims existed. We should not take that at face value because within these categories, there are older categories, there are overlapping categories, there are there's a whole lot of other things that is happening there, which the colonial state had an incentive to mask and conceal for their own sense of control, for their own sense of believing that they actually knew what was happening in the Indian subcontinent. Some of, there's this wonderful book by Kim, Kim Wagner, and there's another one by John Wilson called The Dominance of Strangers. Uh, Kim Wagner is on is on Amritsar. But both these books in recent times, which I've read, essentially talk about the anxiety of the British, that for all the power and might they projected, the empire was always a very anxious project. They were never in full control. They knew they were never in full control. They were always fearful of what would happen. And that meant that they had to keep projecting this facade of control and keep trying to remake the, the Indians a certain way, or at least give the impression that they knew what was happening and this was the shape of things, just so they would feel a little bit more at peace. I'm, I'm putting it simplistically, but that's the broad uh, sort of message. 
it's it's the same insecurities that we see from the state on the side of the border and may just be amplified due to the lack of resources and the lack of maybe a connecting unifying thread that goes by millions of years which has then led to whatever the state of pakistan has become but uh, when we talk about colonialism in this podcast tends to be really really decolonial and we uh, put a lot of blames at their door and often i'm met with this comment that you talk only about british colonialism and not about mogal colonialism and i always say they're not the same and you can never equate the two uh, that somehow they were the same thing but this idea has permeated a lot I, i'm just wondering what your thoughts are in an effort to somehow equalize mogal rule with british colonialism which in my opinion are not the same at all they can't seriously be equalized for the simple reason that if you read sudipta kaviraj for example he talks about how indian society had this circle there was this one giant circle and then there were mini circles within that they may sometimes overlap sometimes circles may break but broadly each circle stuck to itself and the way rural life operated the way life on the ground operated you find even the moguls did not actually upset it they were a kind of top player that came in so that the highest level of politics they were a new influence and naturally that had an impact they brought in a new cultural uh, belief system as i said the, the whole idea that elite hindu women should also seclude themselves comes uh, from the islamic courts and their practice of secluding women so certain influences were brought in by the the islamic sultanates and then later by the moguls but all the same the moguls did not tamper with actual life that was happening at the village level at the local level in in many cases they were willing to let that be because they were also aware of their their small numbers and it wasn't i mean the difference was that the british also lived in a time when there was a huge technological boom the railways telegraphs steam engines you know communication became easier and communication and technology made it easier to control the empire in a certain way the moguls did not have that option they controlled the empire i mean so long as frankly a vassal even somebody who rebelled even even shivaji in the earlier phase when he rebelled it wasn't as though we will send in an army and and, and slaughter all every maratha and and destroy shivaji they invited shivaji to agra and tried to incorporate him into their ritual and 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 political economic system saying that so long as you acknowledge the mogul emperor supremacy you can go back to your your locality and in your locality you can continue to be an important man so long as you acknowledge british supremacy at the head which is very different from the british who try to penetrate every locality at every level remake land revenue systems remake rural uh, customs remake uh, people's identities all of that happened at a completely different level yes the moguls came in as foreigners but precisely because technology did not allow communications over long distances with ease they couldn't keep flitting back and forth between their homeland and india they had no option but to settle in india and settling in india like all other groups of people who come into india not just from the west but also from the east over different periods of time in the long arc of history you end up becoming one more circle in this circle of many circles to quote kaviraj again and people accept you as well in a situation where everybody is allowed their own circle the arrival of one new circle may initially cause a squeeze everybody is pushed back a little bit but then that circle becomes another one on the landscape it's not something that 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 fundamentally alters the structure in in a, in a new way british colonialism was very different in fact the earlier part of british colonialism they often did try to work on indian rules they did patronize temples british troops marched in temple festivals uh, they were giving donations to hindu gods etc because their power was not secure enough but other than security the thing was also that technology hadn't evolved uh, as much the moment they control they had gained political control 
technology made it easy to communicate between bombay madras bombay calcutta and all these places then this confidence grew that acha now to we can hold this uh, empire down in a certain way and then this desire comes where they want to sort of remake everything and and mask their anxiety by constantly sort of engineering things in a, in, a, in a different way the moguls never tried to engineer that they they were happy being right on top but beyond that very rarely did the, the mughal state try to intervene in the actual lives of 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 people on the ground i think that's the problem with uh, taking what is happening right now and projecting that onto the past it may be in the interest of those in power to project certain ideas and uh, to the extent where they gaslight you into rethinking your own lived history you may have lived with the neighbor peacefully for years but then you start questioning that as well because those in power are telling you otherwise since you're mentioning the plurality of our history which should be celebrated but somehow is not these days especially is under fear uh, you've also spoken a lot about the habshi influences and uh, we already mentioned malik ambar here so can, can we can we get a few anecdotes about that which people may not be uh, aware of i mean that's the other thing like when we speak of people who migrated to india we think of the moguls we think of people coming from persia and so on but we don't think of the fact that there was a lot of migration via the sea uh, and and this is one of my grievances against the way indian history is generally defined which is very north india oriented the battles the invasions da la la but look at the peninsula the, the entire peninsula is it's a trading sort of culture that the entire coastline two whole sides of india have access to the sea lots of influences coming in from there lots of influences being exported from there uh, via maritime networks and one of the people one of the sets of people who came to india via these maritime networks were the habshis they would be they, they were essentially abyssinians or or ethiopians from africa who were enslaved but as military slaves not as as slaves in the american sense and they would come off to to india where they would become soldiers fighters warlords etc rise to some very important positions uh, generals they would become regents they could become uh, peshwas or ministers uh, people in 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 positions of great authority and for a time that was really they they had become a rather formidable force in the courts of the of the sultanate malik ambar is merely the best example of the kind of success uh, some of the habshis could achieve when he became the kind of king maker in 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 ahmednagar when the moguls invaded and you know there was a succession problem malik ambar sort of brings up an heir but he becomes the power behind the throne and for about 25 years keeps the moguls at bay whenever we talk about the moguls mughal invasion of the deccan we instinctively think of the marathas resisting it but the marathas gained a lot of support from malik ambar a couple of generations before shivaji and shivaji pays tribute to malik ambar in a court poem called the shiva bharata which was composed by his court poet in the 1670s he does actually sort of glamorize and look at malik ambar very much as a hero and talks about how the marathas uh, you know benefited from malik ambar's support and patronage and this was an african man his daughter was married to the nizam shah of ahmednagar just imagine in a in a town like ahmednagar in india there was a black queen in the in the early 17th century and she wasn't the first uh, the, the the nizam shahs had other you know habshi wives as well many of these habshis because they were military slaves brought to india they unlike the persian immigrants they didn't often bring women they didn't necessarily have access to their homes because they had already been cut off from all that they would end up marrying local women and and sort of disappearing into local bloodlines into local communities and i'm, I'm very sure that a lot of indians probably have habshi blood but don't know it because it happened you know sort of sort of fades away over a period of time 
And uh, a way I like to illustrate this is talking about the last king of Burma. Just as the last Mughal emperor was exiled to Burma, the last king of Burma was exiled to Ratnagiri in Maharashtra, where on, on, on the Konkan coast in India. And he uh, had several daughters. And one of the daughters, these women, women were basically under house arrest. They didn't have friends. They were very lonely. There were no suitable men to marry. One of the princesses ends up having an affair with her local Indian guard, the, the man who's at the gate. And she ends up having a daughter with this, with this man. The daughter grows up and ends up marrying another local man. And the thing is that by the next generation, they've been completely sort of absorbed into the local Hindu community. That Burmese connection is gone. The Burmese names are gone. The dress is gone. It's entirely local Maharashtrian names and clothes and all of that. Some people can perhaps discern features. They can tell that, okay, there's a, there's a kind of uh, Burmese ancestry here. But culturally, they've become part of that Maratha community in, in, in Western India. And if it happened in the 19th century, again, with the Hapshis and the, and the limitations of that time, it clearly means there's a lot of uh, intermingling with local communities. And there's a lot of, I mean, therefore, a lot of Hapshis would have married local women and sort of dissolved into, into the local community over uh, long stretches of time. None of that should surprise us. And it's a pity that we don't know enough about the Hapshis. I really hope one day someone will write a nice hefty volume. The current uh, you know, material that's there, Omar Ali has written a book, which is a very fairly slender volume, because frankly, there isn't that much data I'm assuming to play with. But you, know, you never know, maybe the future will throw up something better and we'll have a more complete and comprehensive idea of how the African influence shaped uh, you know, late medieval and early modern Indian politics. There's an entire Makrani community here in the Makran coast, which is off of Karachi and Balochistan, which claim their African roots. It's almost how all these different identities play. Uh, when we talk about the Mughals, one of the issues, or at least one of the way they described Malik Ambar was the dark skin. So there's racism yes. at play. There's classism at even play. Then. Yeah. There's patriarchy at play. And whatever is convenient to who they tend to pick out that. Uh, should I get in a couple of quick questions from the audience or should I bother you again? Wait, we have an audience. I had no idea. We had no, no, not right. But they've, they've sent those in. Oh, they have. Okay. Yeah. You can ask, I think then. I don't want to say no to audience questions. time <laughs> and they have to run. I'm just like, oh, there are audience <laughs> questions. These aren't mine. Uh, please talk to him about false allies and the role of Gaikwad of Baroda and his role in making Ambedkar the leader he later became. Gaikwad of Baroda was this Sayajirao Gaikwad who was a 12-year-old boy working on a farm illiterate when he was picked up and installed in, on the throne of Baroda by the British as well as the Maharani who both wanted a malleable young enough kid that they could control. Uh, the interesting thing about him is he grew up to be the opposite of malleable and easy to control. He grew into a man who knew his mind, who was quite anti-British uh, to the point that uh, for 30 years the British struggled, but finally managed to accuse him of sedition and so on and for insulting the king emperor. But he was a man who behind the scenes gave financial support to the Congress party. Uh, he funded Ambedkar's education. He was against, he was, he was for caste reform and for sort of nationalism to grow in India to the extent that he even spoke of how the princely states, even though he was one of the top five Indian princes, he said that if India is ever to be a nation, the princely states will have to go. And he was, he had the, the, the honesty to admit that to himself, uh, you know, and, and to a friend quite early on. So very, very interesting figure, but I would suggest you read False Allies to, uh, to read more on him because frankly, he's the, like, Baroda is the biggest chapter in the book. It was 33,000 words when I did the, the first draft and then I had cut it down. It's still 29,000 
words in, in the final version. So it's the thickest, heaviest chapter in the book. And frankly, my favorite because Sayajira was such a charismatic figure. Please ask him the contribution of Malik Ambar in the development of guerrilla warfare that they practiced against Mughals. Yes, I mean, I mean, I don't know if he invented it. People sometimes credit invention with, you know, uh, with, with individuals. But the frank truth is, when you when your enemy has disproportionate resources, you play to your strengths. You make that disproportionate, uh, you know, a large army, etc., something of a weakness. So when the Mughals would come into the Deccan and their large plodding armies would come down, Malik Ambar and his Maratha troops would get on their on their on their fast horses very quickly attack maybe the baggage train maybe some part of the army because these armies would sort of spread over miles they had no way of communicating you know head to tail because they were so big sometimes so by the time the news reached the head that Malik Ambar had attacked he would have disappeared already back into the hills he was also a local he understood the geography of the place uh, unlike the Mughals who were coming in from somewhere else and used that to his advantage that they were able to play the sort of cloak and dagger uh, kind of game with the Mughals and use uh, the fact that the Mughals had these giant armies almost as a negative and, and play the Mughals, uh, you know, and turn that thing on their head. Uh, so yeah, he, he did do that. The Marathas, I think, probably gained a lot of experience uh, from Malikamba's tactics, because what you find is this is what uh, Shivaji also does. And we know that Shivaji's grandfather worked with Malikamba. His father, in some ways, was Malikamba's successor. When Malikamba died, Malikamba's son failed to keep the, the Mughals at bay. Shahaji, Shivaji's father, is the man who then tried to fill that vacuum, tried to uh, sort of, you know, become Malikamba's political successor. He also had limited success, but I'm assuming you can clearly see a kind of uh, continuity between what happened in Malikamba's time versus what Shivaji finally perfects and uses uh, very actively against the Mughals. And the fact, as I said earlier, that Shivaji uh, sort of glorifies and, and pays homage to Malikamba in, in his quote poem, the Shiva Bharata, suggests that Shivaji knew uh, the debt he owed to this hero from a couple of uh, generations before. I can already hear the sound of the keyboard of somebody submitting an article to scroll saying Malikamba, the original Viet Cong. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Don't if you're listening out there. Uh, explain how Marathas Peshwa became kingmaker in India and established puppet Bacha in Delhi. Why not take overall control of Delhi after a huge win over the Mughals? But that's the thing, no? It, you can't say they made the Mughal a puppet. Because what so this is the thing. The Mughals had been around for so long, they had political power and they had legitimacy that came out of ritual power. They were ceremonially the heads of, of Hindustan, the Indian Empire, whatever it is. So even when their political power shattered, their ritual legitimacy survived. So even the Marathas, even though they gained all that political power, the legitimacy and the aura of the Mughals was so strong that it was not possible even for the Marathas to fully topple that. In fact, it continued even into the 19th century. I was surprised when I was doing my research in Travancore to find that even in Kerala, far down at the tip of India, when the queen of, of Travancore had a son, she actually asked the British, will you get me a confirmation of his succession to the throne from the Mughal emperor or, or some representative of the Mughal emperor? It was the British who said, no, no, we're not dealing with the Mughals anymore. You only need a confirmation from us. So even in Kerala, if the queen thought that, you know, getting the Mughal emperor's uh, sanction for her son's uh, position would somehow legitimize him and make him, you know, more of a politically sanctioned figure, um, that suggests that Mughal influence and that aura of the Mughal name continued even into the 19th century. I mean, the Marathas were actually shrewd. It was not as though if they had tried to topple the Mughal emperor and, and completely wipe out the Mughals, 
the mughal emperor's legitimacy would have become a rallying point for a lot of enemies of the marathas the rajputs the jats they would all have gravitated around the mughal emperor made him that the, the sort of totem and used that against the marathas this is what happened in 1857 when the re rebellion broke, broke out against the british they needed a leader and they knew bahadur shah zafar the mughal emperor was an old man not in a position to lead them in a military sense but they went to delhi precisely because the mughal emperor still represented something by way of legitimacy by way of the one authorized figure who could claim uh, imperial power in india so i think the marathas understood that which is why they never uh, you know actively toppled the mughal emperor even though they hollowed out and sort of ate away at its, at the mughal empire's power from within they did not touch or they would not question uh, in any direct way the the ritual supremacy of the mughal emperor how much is the modern rss influenced by the maratha empire I mean, there's interesting studies on this. I forget the name of the scholar, but he's talked about the the development of a kind of localized patriotism in the Maratha homeland from the 17th century onwards, as it picks up in the 18th century. Uh, you do find that you know Shivaji and his contemporaries, the idea of Hindavi Swaraj, you know, sort of resistance to the Mughals, uh, the way it was articulated. and 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 then of course the peshwas come in and that's a very powerful brahmin community that's enjoying royal power uh, for a good uh, century odd and i think uh, the rss and that kind of ideology you look at the political predecessors that thought in some ways comes from western india i think there is a case to be made that you can actually trace perhaps a few tenuous threads but there are threads i think that go back into time and at least people in the 19th century and in the 20th century when the rss was created they identified these aspects of history and not without reason and thought that this could actually support uh, the 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 argument that they were putting forth because there was a kind of intellectual something that happened in the maratha homeland i think there is some there is some truth to that even when they not not categories that we would use today i wouldn't use today's jargon and and wording for it but yeah there is something there i mean you know when there traces and becomes politically expedient to use those for instance uh mohammed bin qasim is described as the first pakistani no idea of yeah. pakistan existed back then but it's convenient for people to posit it as such to yeah. somehow say that the idea of pakistan pre existed the creation of pakistan ask him about the mopla massacre mopla massacre well it was it was a 1921 massacre frankly i've written an article in the hindu uh, earlier this year in august which you can read uh the general tendency there again has been that a number of people see it purely as religious violence that oh my god it was again the the maplas of 1921 in malabar were essentially the taliban of the time decided they would slaughter hindus left right and center and that is what happened the other spectrum is that no no the grievances were all economic religion had nothing to do with it my argument as is encapsulated in the hindu uh, and and in a bunch of youtube interviews in malayalam etc is that there's a bit of both which is that there were economic the maplas of malabar were a politically powerful community till the portuguese came in the colonial period they start getting more and more marginalized so that by the late 18th century the large bulk of the mafla community community actually has very little stake in society they've been reduced to petty peasants who are dependent on on the local hindu landlords for their existence while being aware that they were actually a much greater more powerful community there's that what happens in the 19th century is religion lent so resistance to landlordism even resistance to economic oppression gets a kind of ideological force in religious language so again what i'm saying is these simplistic ideas that the rebellion was purely religious purely economic you have to throw that in the dustbin and realize that even if there were economic grievances it was given a kind of legitimacy to resist it in the language of religion 
there may have been religious fanatics also but equally the economics also matters you have to read all of these things together i, I but i will not underplay the importance of the religion uh, religious aspect there either we've already gone over time i don't want to be greedy because i want you back here soon as well thank you so much for your time uh, such a जेलस हो रहा हूँ मैं तो एट एज थर्टी वो कॉम्प्लेट सो मच यूजली सबसे पहला सवाल uh but no i'm not i'm not very young anymore i'll be 32 in a couple of months so you know i think once you cross 30 this whole idea of you were uh, and 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 you know um, young historian and all that goes out of the window after 30 everybody is just in one cat i'm i'm sure 30 is still uh, young for a historian uh map new man how old are you you look 25 thank you thank you i was born a year before you so 89 ah, you're 90 right acha उथियंस Thank you so oh, much. Pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, and thank you everyone listening. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye.